Okay, the kiddos can go to children's church, and if you've got your Bibles, you can turn to Matthew chapter 26. We're working our way through this wonderful gospel. We're moving towards the end. Let's ask the Lord one more time to kind of speak to us. Father, as we look at this monumental event, the first time the Lord's Supper was celebrated, we ask for you to grasp, give us a grasp of what it means for us today as we celebrate it together. So we truly understand, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, it's um, the Last Supper scene in Matthew, the Passover festival of A.D. 33 was not like other Passovers. Most of the events of the week were the same, of course, but uh, the city of Jerusalem was packed with pilgrims bringing their sacrifices for the most sacred festival of the year. Houses were crowded. Every room was filled with relatives from other parts of the country or renters um, coming to pray. The temple was uh, just a sea of people praying masses of people. Worship was ongoing constantly. But there were some differences. Um, The big difference in AD 33 was that Messiah talk was rampant. Just down the road in Bethany, uh, a man had been raised from the dead. And everybody was excited. And on the Sunday before Passover, Jesus of Nazareth rode a donkey in fulfillment of ancient prophecies into Jerusalem. And he was hailed as the Messiah, the son of David, by his people. Temple life was different in AD 33 because at the beginning of that week, Jesus kicked out all the money changers. So the sound of bargaining was not mixed with the sounds of prayers and singing. And he was there among the porticos and the colonnades and the outer courts where most of the people could be with him and hear him teach. He taught the people about faith. He taught people about God's kingdom. We saw... In Matthew 25, he taught people about readiness. He answered questions about taxes. He talked about the resurrection, about the greatest commandment. He told parables, which were not very veiled attacks on the Pharisees and the scribes. And then in Matthew 23, he just lays into them publicly, very clearly um, exposing their hypocrisy and their wickedness. And they were angry about that. And he wept for Jerusalem, for the place where many prophets sent by God had been rejected and mistreated and murdered. And he healed there in the temple as well, the lame, the blind, uh, all sorts of people, completely cured by his divine power. It was just a, a wondrous several days, but they came quickly to an end as days do, and everyone made preparations to celebrate the most ancient and most honored of all the feasts of the Old Covenant, the Passover. So each year, every family would take into their house this spotless little lamb, and on the day of feasting, they would take it to the temple where it would be slain, and its blood poured out at the base of the altar. And here's why, this is from God's word, Exodus chapter 12, verse 13. The blood shall be a sign for you. That word sign is really important. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you will live. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. 
and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. This day will be a memorial to you, and you shall celebrate it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. You are to celebrate it as a permanent ordinance. So he says, when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. It's a matter of salvation and deliverance. And he calls the blood a sign, and he calls the meal a memorial. Very powerful image. And it's just a picture, isn't it? The blood painted over the doorpost and the lintels of the door. It's a, it's a stark visual and for them even experiential originally, a way of seeing God's deliverance by means of sacrifice and blood. Something had to die so God would pass over and his wrath would not strike the household. So a spotless lamb's life meant safety from the wrath of God. It's a perfect sign, a perfect sign. It's a picture. And it's at this meal celebrating that event that Jesus chooses to announce the reality that the sign is pointing to. Signs all point to something, right? I mean, signs are there to direct your way. They tell you where the thing is that you're looking for. So let's see how Jesus takes this sacrificial idea and applies it to himself. So we're in Matthew 26, verse 26. And I told you last time, Matthew has the shortest account of all the Gospels about the Last Supper, so he's really focused on key ideas. While they were eating, Jesus took some bread, and after a blessing, he broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And, and so like the original Passover, these elements of a meal represent greater realities. In Exodus 12, the Israelites, were, they were supposed to eat the meal all dressed for travel, with their sandals on, with their staffs nearby, with their traveling clothes, ready to go. Along with the lamb, they were supposed to eat unleavened bread and bitter herbs. And so like their traveling clothes and the unleavened bread, um, that all spoke of haste. They're going to be leaving quickly so they don't have time to let the bread rise. I mean, that was sort of the image there. They're going to be leaving their bondage in Egypt and the bitter herbs are a reminder of the bondage they've been under. And the elements of the meal itself use these representative signs as well as the blood of the spotless lamb over the doorpost. So 1,400 years later, Jesus uses two elements of the meal, that same meal, that represents something greater. So they are signs as well. They're pointing us to something. So the key to all of it is actually the result, and that's what Jesus says at the very end of verse 28. The result is the forgiveness of sins. That's what it's all about. So for Israel, the Passover was deliverance from God's wrath against Egypt for all who belong to Jesus, this covenant will be deliverance from the bondage and the penalty of sin. 
So this is the bondage that all human beings are under, so it's relevant to everyone. We are chained to sin, and only the power of God can break those chains. In fact, the human condition is really described probably best by Paul in Ephesians chapter 2, where he says, he says, you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked, he's talking to Christians, according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, that's the bad guy, of the spirit now working in the sons of disobedience, among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest, dead, following Satan, disobedient, indulging our flesh, children of wrath. How would you like that on your tombstone? It belongs. It's not inaccurate. The wages of sin, the Bible says, is death, and the only way to freedom from the bondage to death is to have somebody pay the debt of sin to divine justice, and that's what Jesus did. His body lacerated, his blood shed, his death pays that debt. And in his blood is the forgiveness of sins. And Paul says it really simply in Galatians chapter 3, verse 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. Peter says it even more simply in 1 Peter 3.18. He says, Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust that he might bring us to God. You cannot approach God without that shed blood on your behalf. The just for the unjust. It's the blood of Jesus, the true Passover lamb that allows the wrath of God to pass over many, many people. So Jesus is unfolding for his disciples God's redemptive plan. And it's really the first time he's done it. Uh, he told them he was going to be crucified. We, before, we've gone back through several times in Matthew's gospel. He said, I'm going to go. I'm going to be crucified by the chief priests and the scribes. But he never really told them why that was going to happen. The glorious result that will come from his death, he's, he hadn't told them that clearly yet. See, he's not a martyr. He's not dying for some cause. He's the true and proper sacrifice. And Jesus here calls it a covenant. In fact, Luke's gospel says that Jesus used the word new covenant. Now, any pious Jew would know from Jeremiah chapter 31 that there's a promise of a new covenant that's coming. Those words new covenant were, were an anchor of hope after the repeated and constant failure of Israel to be faithful. Faithful people under the covenant made at Sinai. There had to be a new covenant because the only thing that old covenant did was show how sinful we are. Just like you and I. If we try to live the law of God, all it does is show us that we don't. How much we fail. But God promised through Jeremiah a new covenant. He said, I will put my law within them and on their heart I will write it and I will be their God and they will be my people for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. Not only forgiveness, but this new heart. In fact, in Ezekiel 30, um, 
36, it talks about God taking a heart of stone out of us and giving us a heart of flesh. It's the same idea Jeremiah is dealing with, this writing the law on their heart, changing them. This holy disposition on the inside, this new heart. So they hear it from the Lord Jesus himself how this new covenant is going to come into effect. Jesus is going to be brutally killed the day after he speaks these words, just hours away, and his death will be the inauguration of a new covenant, that promised covenant, where forgiveness is found. It's God's means of rescuing sinful human beings. And just as the Passover meal was to be a perpetual reminder, generation after generation of God's deliverance of Israel, so this new covenant meal would launch a new ceremony of remembrance, a continual reminder of a much greater deliverance. It's great to be out of Egypt, but it's way better to go to heaven. This great deliverance went on the cross. So we have what we call the Lord's Supper or Communion one of only two ceremonies of the new covenant. How many ceremonies are there in the Old Testament? Somebody must have counted them. There's an awful lot of them, but there's only two for us as believers in Christ. It's kind of sad that the Lord's Supper has been the occasion of a lot of controversy in church history, and it really has been. It's it's the one issue that really kept the Protestant churches divided. The Lutherans had a certain view of what the Lord's Supper was and the Reformers, mainly in Switzerland, but then that spread all out in all the other places, they had another view of what the Lord's table was really all about. They agreed on almost everything except that because Martin Luther, I think he actually literally pounded a table and said, this is my body. There's some way that these elements are actually the body of Christ and he didn't believe what the Roman Catholic Church believe in transubstantiation, that the elements are truly actually physically transformed in some way, but he did believe that it was Christ was, that was really him. And the reformers said, no, it's a memorial, it's a memorial. So what began in church and Christianity is a very simple observance with very simple and common elements. Slowly it acquired this kind of mystical, and I have to say superstitious, um, complexity that often happens in religion. You take something simple and as the years go by, people make more and more out of it. Uh, And we don't have time this morning to go into the erroneous views of the Lord's Supper and I don't really want to do that today. But the idea that the bread and wine are really Christ's body and blood, that grew in history with an increasing emphasis on the idea of salvation by sacrament. And a priesthood that mediates salvation and mediates God's grace to you through sacrament. So sacramentalism is the idea that grace comes through sacraments, through ceremonies, not um, just faith. So communion, the Lord's table, brings grace to you. Confession to a priest brings grace to you. Marriage by a priest brings grace to you. Uh, What's called last rites brings grace to you. Baptism brings grace to you. Confirmation brings grace to you. All those things. By the end of the Middle Ages, there were seven sacraments in the Western churches and seven rituals by which grace came to people through a priest. Now, I, I just have to say, the Bible doesn't teach anything like that about any of that. It doesn't have a word about that. You won't even find one place in the New Testament where Christ's ministers are called priests. They're never called that. Never called that. 
So when the Reformation happened and Christians started looking into the Bible alone as their authority, Protestant churches moved from seven rituals down to two rituals. The one initiatory ritual, which would be baptism, a symbol of the new birth, and the one, a perpetual, ongoing ritual, communion, which is ongoing in the life of the church. So how many rituals is not as important as understanding what they do or what they don't do. You have to understand that. They don't save. The Bible says we're saved by grace, which is the free gift of God. So how does grace come to us? I mean, that's like the question. That's the question to ask. The hope of the sacramentalist is that at the end of his life, he's collected enough grace through sacraments to bring him to heaven. But what does the New Testament say? Does it even imply anything like that? It doesn't. Here's what it says. I'll jump to Paul in Titus chapter three, verse five. He saved us, he saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy. By the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. So how does, how does grace come to us? according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and by renewing of the Holy Spirit. It comes directly from God. Ephesians chapter two, verse eight, by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. So by grace through faith, there's just no mention of sacraments anywhere with regard to grace coming to us. Does the New Testament teach an elite priesthood? No. It says we're all priests. That was a foundational idea of the Protestant Reformation as well. 1 Peter 2.9, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. We're all priests. All Christians are priests. By that we mean we have direct access to God. We don't have to go through a human being. We need no mediator but one. 1 Timothy 2.5, there is one God and one mediator between God and man. Guess who it is? It's the guy with the flower. No, it's not. It's not him. It's the man, Christ Jesus. That's who it is. He's the one mediator. So I know I'm throwing a lot of verses at you, but they all point to this one great reality. There is no one who acts as a priest or a mediator in your Christian life except Jesus. He is the only mediator for you. So let's ask the big question. So why do it? Why have communion? What's it all about if it's not a means of grace? And I'm not saying it's not a means of grace. When you open the Bible and read the Bible with an obedient heart, that's a means of grace. I mean, God's grace comes through the word of God. So if God's grace comes to you in some way when you celebrate this thing, but it doesn't come through the church to you. It comes directly to you as you relate to God through signs as well as through the, the word, whether it's the spoken word or the written word of God. So do we do it to further our salvation? No. Do we do it to receive grace? Yeah, but not a mediated grace through people. To add on another work? No. Jesus tells us exactly why we do it, and it's really found in Luke's gospel, I mean, in more detail. Luke twenty-two nineteen. 19, it says, 
When he had taken some bread and given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, this is my body, which is given for you. And you know the words. It's carved on many altars in the beginning, front of churches. Do this in remembrance of me. That's it. That's what it's all about. Why do we do it? We do it to remember him. It is a precious sign by which we remember him and what he did for us. Sometimes, you know, look, I know how it works. And I don't really pay attention to you guys while I'm preaching. I'm thinking about what I'm saying, but, well, I just noticed now you were dropping off back there. But um, <laughs> I, know, I know you can get drowsy and uh, you can start thinking about lunch or something's pressing on your mind and that's where your mind goes and the guy's babbling up there and all that kind of stuff. And it can, you can kind of lose that, you know, uh, daydreaming, Sunday afternoon, what are we going to do this afternoon? But to hold a piece of bread in your hand and then hold the cup in your hand, it's really hard to not think about what those things are about. It's hard to let your mind go elsewhere. That's why we do it. That's why he was, it was given to us. It makes us more aware of what Christ did through signs, And as we give special attention to him and his sacrifice, which is very near the heart of our salvation, then we are built up in our spirit by faith in what he did for us. So Jesus' words take on an added dimension when we hold in our hands these signs. It's a a, a deeper impression is made. This is my body, which is given for you. One writer said it like this. He said, we remember to realize again what our blessed Lord has done and suffered for us. It's easy to forget It's easy to lose the cutting edge of emotion and realization. It's easy to forget that Jesus Christ suffered and died for us. And even when we remember, it is easy to remain unmoved. But in the communion service, with its vivid picture, realization of what Jesus Christ did and suffered for us is rekindled and reborn. That's my experience. It's hard not to be moved in a deeper way when you're holding the elements in your hand. We hold the bread, it's broken, knowing that he said it was to remember his broken body. We hold the cup, it looks like blood in there, knowing that he said the new covenant is in his shed blood. It's a powerful way to remember the most important thing. You can can call it what you want, tactile learning. It's a way they might describe it, somebody might describe it. you, You can call it that if you want to, but it works. Things... Things to touch can be stronger than abstract thoughts. It's just that simple. So that's why it's been given to us. That's why families hang on to heirlooms or take pictures or have paintings done for the future. In the Bible, you, you keep coming across people in the Old Testament who are piling up stones. And they pile up stones for a reason because somebody's going to come by and say, why is there a pile of stones there? And then somebody's going to tell the story about what happened there. And there's a reason why those pile of stones are there. It's a memorial. It's a way to remember If you ever go to the Vietnam Memorial in Washington, that black marble and the names carved in there, it's hard not to be moved by just, you know, running your fingers down the the names there. We took our family to Gettysburg some years ago, and um, there's just an emotional resonance being there, walking Pickett's Charge or being up there on Little Round Top and all of that. Because as Americans, so many people died there for a reason, what Abraham Lincoln at the Gettysburg Address called Men Who Gave the Last Full Measure of Devotion. It's neat to know that in a history book, but to walk it, it's deeper. It's just deeper. It's more real. It touches the heart more deeply when you walk the ground. Ah, General Chamberlain stood right there. 
A physical sign has great memorial value. So Jesus chose the perfect signs to remember him and what he accomplished. So bread and wine were, everybody ate that. They were the most basic staples in that culture. They're the most basic staples in most agrarian cultures, certainly in the Middle East. Bread is sustenance, and Jesus said he was the bread of life. Wine refreshes the soul, and it has that blood-like appearance to it. So spiritually, in this meal, we find our, our souls sustained and gladdened by the memory of Christ's love for us. These symbols all represent the gospel, and the gospel's everything. And we must always live in the light of the gospel. So as we partake of this ongoing memorial, we are recentering. We're recentering our lives on the most fundamental thing, which is the gospel of Jesus, that he died for us and paved the way for our salvation. You can't partake and forget that he was broken for you. You can't partake of this drink and not think about his blood being shed for you. For you means on your behalf. That's what it means, for you, on your behalf. You can't stand before God on judgment day in your own righteousness because you are not gonna have what you need when you get there. You can't go before God on judgment day and just say, you know, I don't really need that Jesus thing. I, I, got, I think I'll just let him know how good I am. That doesn't work because you don't have any righteousness before God. You're so full of sin. But the Lamb of God can cloak you in His righteousness so that when you stand before God, you are what the New Testament calls being in Christ. And when you're in Christ, His righteousness is counted as your righteousness. That's everything. So you can stand before God confidently in him because of his blood, because he paid the debt to justice for you. And the fruit of his sacrifice is that we already possess this eternal life. We don't have to labor for it or crawl for it or cling for it or try to collect things for it. It's already ours in him. And that gives the meal a future aspect. Our salvation was earned for us. That's what it's all about. And we only wait for the fullness of it, not to try to get it. So Jesus not only points us back, but he points us ahead, ahead to his glorious kingdom. If you look at verse 29, he points to future joy in the presence of God. Matthew 26, 29. I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until, he's pointing you to the future, until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. So Jesus has been a teetotaler for 2,000 years or whatever they drink in heaven. I don't know what they do. But he hasn't, he hasn't tasted wine in all that time, but he will in the kingdom. And it's going to be really good wine. In fact, Isaiah says it's refined, aged wine. What a promise. And did you catch those two important little words? With you. With you. I will not drink of the fruit of the vine from now on until the day I drink it new with you in the Father's kingdom. That's beautiful. Can't wait. The value of the symbols you hold in the Lord's Supper are for now, forgiveness. You can be forgiven by God now through what Jesus did. And for the future, it's joy in the Father's kingdom. Well, there's one last thing Matthew tells us about the Last Supper. So let me just talk about it real briefly. 
It's the hymn. Verse 30, after singing a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Wouldn't you love to see that? To see Jesus singing with his disciples? What did they sing? What did they sing? Well, if they followed the Passover tradition, they sang at least part of the Hallel. We talked about that last Sunday. Psalm 113 through 118, during the Passover, when you went to the temple to bring your lamb and they were sacrificing the lamb, that's what the chorus was singing and, and the people that were there doing this, bringing their sacrifices would repeat each line of the Hillel. So Psalm 113 through 118, then you'd go back and start at 113 again, it just kept going. So as the crowds were coming, bringing their sacrifices, it would be repeated and repeated and repeated. And the word Hillel just means praise. Those are praise psalms. And we don't know if at the meal the whole thing was sung or maybe just a portion of it. Um, but very likely that is what they sang together because that was the tradition. And I just love thinking about that. And I would encourage you, if you have some time, to think about the night of the Last Supper and all that transpired between Jesus and the apostles that night and consider, if possible, how Jesus felt that night, knowing what was coming. And then take your Bible out and slowly um, read out loud the Hallel especially the last part of it, Psalm 116 to Psalm 118. And I want you to read just, I want to read right now for you just the closing words of Psalm 118. This is the end of it. This is how, this is, this, these would have been the last words they would have sung together if that's what they were singing, and I think it probably was. So these are the probable words Jesus sang with his men to conclude the Last Supper. I'm going to pick it up at Psalm 18 verse, 118 verse 19. Open to me the gates of righteousness. I shall enter through them. I shall give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous will enter through it. I shall give thanks to you for you have answered me and you have become my salvation. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day which the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. O oh Lord, do save, we beseech you. O oh Lord, we beseech you, do send prosperity. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God, and he has given us light. Bind the festival sacrifice with cords to the horns of the altar. You are my God and I give thanks to you. You are my God, I extol you. Give thanks to the Lord for he is good, for his loving kindness is everlasting. And that's the end. And then they went out to pray at the Mount of Olives. Did you hear that um, one line, the stone which the builders rejected became the chief cornerstone? That's right there in the Passover hymn, that remarkable paradox, that Messiah, which Jesus had brought up earlier in Matthew, in his very rejection and dying, he brings forth the new covenant, which becomes far more expansive and a source for hope for far more people than the old covenant ever could. He's the one they rejected as the Messiah, and he becomes the chief cornerstone for a whole new covenant that God's going to provide for Israel. He's singing about it. 
And right near the end of the psalm, one can imagine Jesus singing the words, bind the festival sacrifice with cords to the horns of the altar, knowing that he would be pinned to a cross cruelly for hours. He's singing about himself, the true sacrifice. So his perfect life was the purchase price for our redemption. And Peter, who was there that night with Jesus, singing these words perhaps, definitely sang with him something, many years later wrote these words in 1 Peter 1.17. He says, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. Being a Christian is about Christ, nothing else. It's about Christ. That's the center. It's not a philosophy. It's not an ethical system. You know, a little religion, that's good for the kids. It's not that. Christianity is Christ, the dying Savior, God in human flesh, paying the debt we owe to divine justice. That's what Christianity is. And we do owe him. What do we owe him? All creatures, all of his creatures, owe him perfect love and devotion and complete obedience. And what do we give him? Sin and rebellion and bitterness and cursing and theft and cruelty and impurity and lies. And we litter his universe with evil thoughts and words and deeds. We owe this debt. And we put away, you know, we put away criminals until they have paid their debt to society, right? Isn't that what we say? When I stand before God on judgment day, they're going to take out my file, and it's big. And there'll be a long list of crimes in there against God's holiness. Debts that I owe my creator. And this angelic clerk is going to open the file and he's going to look at the first page. I'm imagining this, obviously. (laughs) The first page in the file and he's going to see that it's stamped with blood red ink and it says paid in full. Not because I'm wonderful, but because Jesus took all my sins on the cross and paid my debt for me. That's why. How can that be How can it be paid in full? Not because I'm a nice guy. I am a really nice guy, but not for that. Not because I've said so many prayers. Not because I gave so much to charity. Not because I stayed faithful to my wife. Not because I didn't do drugs. That's like telling a judge, I only robbed five banks this year. The 360 other days, I was great. No crime. So let me go. Seriously, Your Honor, that's like 3% bad days. You're going to punish me for that? You're putting me away for that? You know, crimes are not made up for, for good days. There's not a balance there. It's not how it works. God is holy. Plus, you haven't had any good days if you really think about it. But God is holy. He's perfect. He's just. I am indebted to him, so I need a savior, or I have to pay the penalty. And Jesus Christ is perfection, and he substituted himself 
for me. Jesus said, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Those are his words. Are you one of the many? Because you can be. Humble yourself before him as your righteous king and receive him as your savior and those last words of Psalm 118 will belong to you. Give thanks to the Lord for he is good for his loving kindness is everlasting. His love never fails and he proved that at the cross and when you come to him and receive him and acknowledge his lordship over your life, he becomes your savior from all sin and he makes you a new person. He writes his law on your heart and then you belong to him forever. That's what he did for you. So don't turn it away. Let's celebrate his sacrifice the way he deserves. Let's pray. Lord God, we are so unworthy of your love and you give it so freely. Your love is free, but the price had to be paid, justice had to be satisfied. You paid that debt, our debt. The Lord Jesus, God as man, bore our curse, our much-deserved condemnation, the just for the unjust. So let us not forget ever the gift you gave us, forgiveness. We love and thank you for it and for him. And we pray in our precious Savior's name, amen.